Welcome to the Accelerated Physics Podcast. It's a show where we talk about teaching and learning physics. I'm Sean Downs for the Poseidon Institute. Today is another big ideas kind of show where we take classroom concepts and put them in a broader perspective. So please do take these examples and share them with your students. Today we are talking about spin, quantized spin, you know, spin in the sense of quantum mechanics. So let's get to it. Spin is an easy concept to sketch, but it's a hard concept to explain properly. Quantum mechanics is hard, sure, but there's also a lot of details that can be easily conflated and confused. Angular momentum and magnetic dipole moments are the main ideas in today's discussion. And the way that we teach students about both just doesn't line up with the reality of quantum mechanics. But it almost does. It's frustratingly close. And that's what's so tricky about introducing the idea of spin. So let's start from the beginning and add texture and nuance as we go. All kinds of objects spin. Tops spin, the earth spins, baseballs spin, frisbees spin, hurricanes spin, hey, even ice skating athletes spin. These classical mechanical notions of spin are a rotation around an axis of symmetry of some object. The more complicated the object, the more nuanced the dynamics can be. Spheres are easy. They have a whole lot of symmetry and relate better to point particles. So for today, we'll just stick with spheres. So to that end, consider a spinning ball. What's its angular momentum? Well, angular momentum, of course, is just a vector whose magnitude is proportional to the ball's rate of spin and whose direction is along the axis of symmetry. You can find the axis of symmetry by drawing dots on the ball and watching them move. Most of them will just go around in circles, but exactly two such dots will not. You might call them the north and south poles. If you were to put an actual pole through the ball from south to north, you could still spin the ball and nothing would really change. That imaginary pole is directed along the angular momentum vector. By convention, the direction we choose is south to north. So when we think about the angular momentum of a spinning ball, we think about an arrow sticking out of that ball. Now, the angular momentum of that ball is kind of like the angular momentum of an atom or a proton. It's almost the same, but not quite. There's nuance. We often think of particles like atoms or, or protons as tiny little spheres. I mean, they're not, of course, but from really far away, particles can look like points. And by that, we actually mean something really precise. Particles often have spherical symmetry. But a particle's spin breaks that symmetry a little bit. A sphere that was completely still would certainly have that symmetry. But a spinning sphere has angular momentum. It has that imaginary pole. It's got a vector pointing in some direction, and that vector is a preferred direction. It breaks the spherical symmetry. Now, I realize this is a subtle point, but in a way, it is a point that we teach to our students when we teach electromagnetism. (music) 
The second semester of a physics course is typically all about electromagnetism. You know, electric fields and magnetic fields. Now, full-blown electromagnetism is actually quite hard, even for the experts, so we usually only teach students about very symmetric, kind of idealized systems. Points, lines, and sheets of charge. Loops and lines of current. You know, those kinds of things. The electric fields of point charges are very similar to, say, the gravitational field of the Earth, so of course we spend a lot of time talking about them. They have perfect spherical symmetry. The electric field points radially in all directions, but what happens when we give that charge a spin? Well, moving charges generate magnetic fields, but spinning points are a little awkward to discuss. So instead, we can take a simple toy model of a loop of current. And we definitely teach our students about current loops. Usually, we ask them to compute the magnetic field from a loop of current in some computationally convenient place, like in the middle of the loop. Now, taking that loop to be very, very small, we essentially get a model of a spinning charge. And the magnetic field points in a definite direction, up from the center of the loop, the axis of rotation in our model here. And at large distances, the magnetic field falls off like one by the distance cubed. In other words, it's a dipole, a magnetic dipole field. Computing the full magnetic field from a tiny loop of current, even ignoring the effects from the size of the loop, is still pretty complicated. We often tell students to just think of them as tiny little magnetic fields pointed along some axis of symmetry. We'll often talk about the energy of magnetic fields and how those loops of current want to align themselves with other magnetic fields to kind of lower the energy of the system. Some might even ask their students to calculate the approximate energy of two loops of current sitting right next to each other. To do that, we sometimes think of the loops as having a basically constant magnetic field so that the only variable that we really consider is the direction of the magnetic field. Now, this is a really, really simplistic model, but it turns out to be pretty powerful. Indeed, as the Ising model for a ferromagnet, it performs really well. We can think of a bar magnet as being made up of a bunch of little current loops, all pointing together in the same direction to lower the energy of the whole system, which, you know, we then use to keep our graded exams stuck to the refrigerator. Amusingly, the collective behavior of all those tiny little loops of current, those tiny little magnets, forms one big magnet that can also be approximated as a dipole field. Gah, linearity is such an intoxicatingly simple thing. In quantum mechanics, spin takes on a whole new meaning. It's a property of particles, sure, but it's more than that. It's somehow intrinsic to them. They're always spinning, and they're always spinning at basically the same rate. And that rate comes in half-integer units of the fundamental constant, h-bar. I mean, I guess they might kind of speed up or slow down, but there are rules governing how they can, and they can only jump between these discrete fixed values. Their spin, in other words, is quantized, and that has little, if any, similarity to our classical understanding of the world. Of course, particles are also electrically charged, and they also have tiny magnetic fields. Those magnetic fields are basically dipoles. Are those magnetic fields related at all to how the particles are spinning? Well, yes, but 
not in the way that you'd think. The classical models almost get it right, but not quite. There's nuance. I mean, consider the neutron, one of the particles in the atomic nucleus. The neutron is electrically neutral, whence the name. But despite this fact, it has a fair-sized magnetic field that's almost as big as the protons. Now, that fact betrays some kind of complicated inner structure of the neutron. But still, classical electromagnetism is linear. In the classical theory, things add like you'd expect. Remember bar magnets made up of little, tiny magnets? Quantum electrodynamics, let alone particle physics, isn't exactly linear. Nevertheless, one thing still remains true. In a magnetic field, particles with magnetic moments preferentially change their spin to align with that field. Why? Well, it lowers the energy, like you'd expect from elementary physics. Practically speaking, you can conflate the magnetic moment of a particle like an atom or an electron or a neutron with its spin. While they're precisely related for elementary particles, for composite things like atoms or neutrons, it's approximately true. In any case, the particle with its magnetic dipole field will certainly receive a kick from a strong magnetic field. And to share the essential physics in a discussion with your students, it might be helpful to recount the Stern-Gerlach experiment, which aimed a beam of silver atoms, spin one-half particles, at a strong, sharp magnetic field. A beam of particles is just a random assortment of them moving through space, one after another, after another. I mean, they're all in line, sure, like a train of little spheres, but their dipole moments? Their spins? Those little arrows sticking out of the spheres? I mean, hey, they could be pointing in any which way. If you aim a beam of particles at a strong, sharp magnetic field, those particles would all get kicked individually. But the amount and direction of that kick depends on where their magnetic moment was pointing. You know, that little arrow. Along the beam, those kicks would be just as random as the arrangement of those dipoles. So if a particle strongly aligned with the magnetic field, they get kicked a lot. Alternatively, if its spin is orthogonal to the magnetic field, it wouldn't get kicked very much at all. The kick, if you like, is proportional to cosine theta, but that angle theta is randomly distributed along the beam. At least, this is what our little model of particles as current loops tells us. And if that model was right, the beam of particles would fan out, some getting kicked upwards and some getting kicked downwards, some barely getting kicked at all. The cross-section of the beam, a little dot, would deform into a little stripe. Indeed, you could launch a stream of really lightweight refrigerator bar magnets at a really, really strong magnetic field, and that's exactly what you'd see. The stream would kind of smear out into a fan of magnets before they eventually smash into whatever target you had behind the magnetic field. But that little current loop model doesn't work for particles subject to quantum mechanics, small things like atoms or neutrons. Quantum mechanics says that particles can only have discrete units of spin. They can't smear or fan out. They can only take on quantized values. Otto Stern and Walter Gerlach did that experiment with particles subject to quantum mechanics. Silver atoms. And do you know what they saw? The beam of silver atoms didn't fan out. 
it's split in two, which is good because the silver's outermost and therefore most reactive electrons live in the 5s1 configuration, meaning it has zero orbital angular momentum, but a net spin of one half, meaning that a beam of silver atoms really should split in two, corresponding to two distinct quantum states, plus h-bar over two, minus h-bar over two. And that's our show. The Accelerated Physics Podcast is brought to you by, oddly enough, the Physics Accelerator. The Physics Accelerator is a suite of support services offered by the Poseidon Institute related to learning and teaching physics effectively. One-page reference sheets, problem sets, coaching, and more. If you need a little help with your physics or math, or you're looking to extend your knowledge, please check us out. We're here for students from advanced high school on up, including any adults who want a quick way to refresh their skills. We're here for you at physicsaccelerator.com. The Accelerated Physics Podcast is a production of the Poseidon Institute, whose mission is to build and share physics knowledge without barriers. This podcast aims to serve both students and teachers of physics by injecting ideas and starting conversations. Do you have any ideas or feedback? Hey, drop us a line. This show is made possible in part by the Physics Accelerator, whose mission is to support people in the quest to learn mathematics and physics. The Physics Accelerator is a program of the Poseidon Institute. The show is written, edited, and produced by me, Sean Downs. Thank you so much for listening.